Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist. In this podcast, I'm exploring addiction and recovery by talking to people across a wide diversity of perspectives, not just academic experts in different fields, but also advocates and people with lived experience. My goal is to respect the nuance and challenge of understanding addiction and recovery while keeping it accessible for everyone and practically focused on what matters most. If you want to learn more, please head over to my website, where you can sign up for my newsletter to stay up to date with the latest episodes, show notes, and other writings. You can find that at carlericfisher.com. So this is episode four, the first one I'm publishing since launching a couple of weeks ago. And I wanted to say I'm really gratified by people's responses. I really enjoyed connecting with folks. A few people wrote in with questions and comments, DMing me on Twitter, or just writing back to my email newsletter. And I really appreciate that. It helps me to know who's out there and what you're looking for. My aim with this was just to do an experiment and continuing some conversations that arose out of my own work. So to the extent that we can have a conversation over social or otherwise, I really enjoy that. So thanks to everyone who's been in touch. So in this episode, I talk with Dr. Eric Garland. He's the Distinguished Endowed Chair in Research and the Distinguished Professor and Associate Dean for Research at the University of Utah College of Social Work, where he also directs the Center on Mindfulness and Integrative Health Intervention Development. His work spans this really interesting diversity from basic neurobiology to psychotherapy research, and I was especially interested in this one intervention he's created called MORE, and we'll talk more about what that is, but it has to do a lot with how mindfulness is incorporated into clinical care, including how it goes beyond what we might think of as the basic entry-level stress reduction. And that's a big interest of mine for this podcast in general, the, the liminal spaces and the borders between disciplines. So mindfulness has been used as a basic stress reduction technique for ages, really, decades and decades. But especially after this relative craze for mindfulness in recent years, there's, a, I think, an increasing interest in what else these meditative and contemplative traditions can do when where we draw the lines, what's religious and spiritual and what's appropriate and not for clinical work. And what is a human universal and how to work for reducing suffering for all. So we cover a lot of ground in this one. There's a nice connection with the, the first episode with Katie Witkowitz, uh, talking about focusing not just stopping problematic use, but increasing well-being. Dr. Garland talks about how to study the science of mindfulness without losing the wisdom traditions it comes from. In his case, he includes these pillars of reappraisal and savoring as part of the intervention. And we'll talk more about what exactly that means. A big focus of his work is on how to restore the healthy function of the reward system and the brain relearning what is and is not important in life, and even all the way out to self-transcendence as a clinical goal. What he's found about that aspect of mindfulness and meditation practice and how self-transcendence can reduce substance problems. And there's also a really tantalizing bridge to pain and chronic pain. Dr. Garland has some surprising and in a way paradoxical findings on working with chronic pain in particular, how delving into the heart of pain can help people to work with pain. So there's a lot there. In the end, I think it's a quite practical and pretty fun conversation, whether you work in mental health care or whether you're just interested in how mindfulness and meditation practices apply to addiction recovery and more broadly, how to work with human suffering and flourishing. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Eric Garland. So let's start off with one of those interventions. So you developed an intervention called Mindfulness-Oriented Recovery Enhancement. And I was wondering if just to give us some ground to stand on, you could walk us through, just what is that? What is it like? Great. Love to. Developing Mindfulness-Oriented Recovery Enhancement or more has been uh, my life's work. So I'm always happy to talk about it. And so more is a mindfulness-based psychotherapy that I first developed well over a decade ago. And I developed it really to meet a need, which was at the time that I was, I was considering developing this therapy, there were really no mindfulness-based treatments for addiction that were, that were out there and accessible. And at the moment that I really decided to move forth with developing this therapy, there had only been a few sort of non-rigorous studies of mindfulness meditation practices and their potential for reducing addiction. But there have been no large-scale, well-controlled clinical trials at that point. So there was a really, there was a need to, to do something. And so that, that's one of the things that motivated me to develop more. But more is more than mindfulness, pun intended. 
<laughs> the puns with a therapy and named more are, are endless. There's always more and more where, where that yeah. came from. <laughs> but so mindfulness is the foundation and more is a mindfulness oriented therapy. But then we scaffold upon mindfulness, other therapeutic approaches that are complementary to mindfulness. And the three pillars of more are mindfulness, reappraisal, and savoring. And so these three therapeutic components and not only do I believe, but also the data suggests that they, they interact with one another and they're synergistic with one another. So mindfulness facilitating reappraisal and savoring can actually induce an upward spiral of positive emotion and positive cognition, positive thoughts and, and mental experience that, that can lead a person to develop a greater sense of meaning in life and potentially even the sense of self-transcendence, the sense of being connected to something greater than the self, which you know we know from the addiction community is, is really important given that addiction often arises out of a sense of isolation and disconnection with the world. So more aims to sort of move a person from that place of disconnection to this greater sense of, of connectedness and wholeness and teaching the, the patient how to sort of fill the void or fill the hole that has that was fueling the addiction and also has been further eroded away by addiction teaching them how to fill that by self-generating experiences of natural pleasure reward joy and meaning in life so um, that's a that's a very brief summary of more but i'm happy to dive into any any more of the components yeah, that's great. I wonder how many times uh, people will say more on the uh, podcast. Maybe we could set up a little counter if we upload it to YouTube or something. I'll try to stop. But, I'll try to stop. <laughs> no, it's good. It, I mean, it's such a fascinating intervention, and I love the emphasis on how it's a scaffold and there are things beyond mindfulness. The thing that was curious to me about the title was not so much the mindfulness. I mean, there's a lot of richness about how to define mindfulness, how to oper operationalize it, et cetera. But I was almost more curious about the recovery because I'm, you know, I'm sure you're familiar. There's such debate over how to define in a, in a clear and concise way and especially how to study it in, in a scientific way. So like, what, do you have a working definition of recovery or a way that you, you think about recovery? Yeah, well, I, well I, I think about recovery in contrast to relapse prevention. And actually, you know, one, there's another really prominent mindfulness therapy for addiction called mindfulness-based relapse prevention. But the concept of relapse prevention is rather narrow, right? It, it defines the goal, at, the goal of addiction treatment as to prevent the person from using drugs again. And it really kind of harkens out of a probably, a, I don't know the full history, but it probably harkens out of have an abstinence-only model as well, although I don't know how, how Alan Marlat would have felt about that. But with respect to recovery, recovery is, is a different concept, and it, and it implies that addiction treatment needs to not only myopically focus on preventing people from ever using drugs again, but instead helping them to develop a more meaningful life and to enhance a broader sense of well-being and to grow as a person, and that these components are equally, if not more important than the elimination of destructive drug use. And so that really, that's the spirit that sort of, that informed more and infuses more. Um, we certainly focus on the use of mindfulness skills as a way to increase self-control and self-regulation of automatic addictive habits to prevent people from slipping back into using. I mean, that's a major focus of the therapy. And also for people who are using, and, and, we've, and we've tested more in patients who are abstinent from substances, but we've also tested it in patients who are continuing to use substances during the treatment process. And there the goal is to help them to use mindfulness to gain awareness of their, of their patterns of use, and then to ultimately to gain, again, self-control or be able to self-regulate their use. But that's the foundation of more. But then upon that, again, is, that's a scaffolding, and upon that we build in these other components that are really designed to help the patient in their recovery process by creating a more meaningful, fulfilling existence. That's great. I, you know, I think it's so crucial to focus on that aspect, the sort of day one problem of recovery. It's not that hard in some context for some people 
to stop use. But then for a lot of people, that's just signing up for the marathon. And then you actually have to train for and, and run for it. You know, I, I was actually going to leave this for later in the interview, but it seems like a good time to ask it. I was wondering about that, that notion of meaning and purpose and, and flourishing, because it intersects with a broader question, as I understand it in the mindfulness research community, whether mindfulness can be pared down to a brain hack or a sort of like specific targeted practice to achieve a relatively circumscribed psychological effect versus mindfulness is something that's embedded in a social and cultural system or set of systems that had teachings on values and ethics and morality. I mean, like the hard, the hardest criticism, which I try to be receptive to as someone who does do mindfulness-based clinical work is MIC mindfulness. Like you can't just boil it down to make it the sort of McDonald's version of, of mindfulness. So I was, I was just wondering how you think about that broader critique, if there's anything there that's uh, of use to us and um, how you make sense of the whole like values and ethics question. Yeah, that's a big question. First of all, as a scientist, so I'm a, I'm a clinician and a scientist. So as a scientist, I see true value in, in taking them, in conducting mechanistic research on mindfulness-based therapies and, and really understanding the precise pathways by which specifically delineated techniques can modulate the function of the brain and promotes various dimensions of psychological health. So, so I think, and I don't view that as big mindfulness at all. I view that as careful mechanistic work that the field really needed and continues to need both in order to advance human knowledge, to help to optimize and develop more efficacious mindfulness-based therapies. And then the third reason is actually has nothing to do with science at all or therapy. It has to do with increasing the credibility of this approach, making people understand that mindfulness meditation and mindfulness-based interventions, actually, it's not a bunch of mystical woo-woo, but actually uh, produces concrete, measurable effects. And so I don't, I don't really, I don't fall into the big mindfulness critique camp. It's not something that concerns, that, that particular piece of it doesn't concern me too much. What does concern me is what you raised, what you're intimating about, which is the, ethic, the, the void of ethics and, and values, which has led to the application of mindfulness to, to maybe some domains that are less, less consistent with the original purpose of mindfulness, which is really all about self-transcendence and so to, to boil it down i mean you could there's other ways you could spin it you know compassion for example is another way of spinning self-transcendence but the notion that attachment to the sense of a permanent self and feeding a craving to grow the, the permanent self is something to be let go of because it's an impediment along the way to self-realization and and being a better person as part of a larger system and ecology. So that to me, so that's, to me, that's, you know, obviously that's what, that was the original soteriological purpose of mindfulness was to do that. And the danger with the MIC mindfulness thing is, you know, people are using it as sort of like a performance enhancing drug, so to speak. And I think mindfulness could be powerful as a performance enhancing drug, but in the vacuum sucked out when the, when the, when the ethical foundation and values have been sucked out of it, that could be a dangerous path. Yeah. That's so I want to jump in there because I love that word soteriological. I only came across it recently actually that but the way I understand it is a soteriology is a is a theology or a viewpoints a stance on what is enlightenment or what is freedom or what is like the end goal of human flourishing. And so that that makes sense to me and so there's what I'm hearing you say is that there's a danger to using mindfulness to say like train a military sniper or using mindfulness to train a CIA investigator or even for someone to use it say like at the poker table it, which might not be helping their own flourishing or helping somebody else's flourishing but I can also and I think there is I can imagine I think there is a critique from the other side which is that mindfulness was embedded in a system that incorporated training around values and ethics and that's like necessary you know it's not it's not an optional part of getting to the end goal of flourishing so i guess you know maybe to ground the conversation i'm wondering like what what's the stuff that gets built on the scaffolding and more and like how do you bring in inquiry around like values and meaning into like a, a rigorous like scientifically based therapy 
Good question. I mean, my, the short answer is, is we do it in a modern way in contradistinction from, from an ancient way, which is here's this whole package of values and ethics that we want you to intake and we want you to follow it religiously because it is your religion. That, while that may have worked for multiple different cultures over millennia, I don't think it works well for modern American society. People don't like to be told what to do. And there's, there's this notion of personal freedom is really important. So instead of, instead of us sort of jamming it down people's throats, we take a, more of an approach of inquiry, which is to, to ask people, you know, what is the meaning of your life? What are your values? How can you discover the sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment in your everyday existence? And when you start to look for that, what, you know, what, what comes up for you? And how does that change your life experience when you orient your mind in this way? So we, we nudge people in that direction without giving them specific content. We don't tell them what their values should be. We don't tell them what their ethics should be. We don't tell them what their, their, meaning, their, personal, their meaning should be. Because quite frankly, meaning is, is, if there's anything that's ultimately personal and self-derived, it would be meaning. You know, Viktor Frankl, whose work really influenced my work, I mean, he was the major proponent of that concept, but that was the ultimate human freedom, was the, the individual's personal capacity to generate their own sense of meaning in life. And then, in fact, nobody could give that to you. So following that philosophy, we orient people towards that search being important, and we teach them how to use mindfulness and the associated skills of reappraisal and savoring as a way to, to search and find that sense, but we don't actually prescribe a particular package of values or ethics. And, you know, I personally think that's, that's more consistent, again, with our culture's ideals of, of freedom and self-determination. But who knows, maybe, maybe, maybe the old way of doing it is better. I, you know, I, I can't say, but that's, that's not the path that I've followed in my career. Yeah, that, it makes sense to me. At the very least, if you want to do it within a health system and potentially receive funding for it, meaning like to be a clinician practicing a mindfulness-based intervention, it makes sense that you would not tie it to some sort of like preconceived notion of values or ethics. I mean, I've, I've read critiques coming from psychiatry. I've read critiques of uh, like 1960s era psychoanalysis MDs who were called stealth missionaries because they, they presented themselves as scientifically rational but in fact, their, their view had like a very powerful stance on the way the world works and the way the world should be and what's worth pursuing and not. So I think, you know, I think it's really hard, but really necessary for, for me as a clinician, just speaking for myself, to be mindful of my own biases and to like constantly be returning to that imperative to work for the patient and to not put my own values or beliefs on them. So I'm glad to hear that more, it sounds like more has, a, has like a structure in place for that to allow clients and the individuals together to work on exploring the meaning. So how does that work? I mean, how do you, how do you do it? How does it work and what does it do for the patient? I was going to say one, there is one exception to that where we are, we are sort of pointing people towards a, a particular soteriological value and that is self-transcendence. This is something that has naturally emerged in the, the more research program over the past 10 years. And it's funny because there's a parallel process because I think it's also a naturally emergent property that arises at, at, out of the combination of mindfulness reappraisal and savoring skills. The ability to recognize and appreciate the sense of interconnectedness between the self and the world or a sense of oneness, if you will, with all things. And, you know, we've been really surprised that patients with uh, pretty severe forms of addiction and psychopathology with very minimal amounts of education and no, no, you know, background and spiritual religious background that connects to these concepts, nonetheless, through practicing eight weeks of mindfulness and associated skills in the more intervention, many of these folks actually achieve tastes of this experience of self-transcendence, feeling connected to something greater than the self, feeling the sense of the self begin to fade away into a, a sense of openness and connection. And 
from a scientific perspective, what, what really has motivated our focus here on self-transcendence as sort of the fourth pillar or the emergent pillar of more has been the data and the data showing that increases in these self-transcendent experiences are actually predictive of symptom relief. So the patients who experience the, the greatest, deepest tastes of self-transcendence experience the greatest relief of physical pain and the greatest reduction in drug use. And, not, and that we're not only capturing that on the self-report level, but also that there are neurocorrelates to this experience of self-transcendence and that those neurocorrelates actually, again, are predictive of clinical improvement. So seeing, seeing that kind of data, and we've published that in a couple of papers now, and I have a whole ton of this data that's not even yet published that reinforces and replicates this, this finding. To me, that really, that encourages me to, to continue to, to grow this part of more and explore it. And so, that, so that's the one piece where I think it's not, more is not totally value-free because that's, that's, one, that's one place where we're actually pointing people towards something. And, and it's about your original question of, you know, what well, let me ask you, actually, let me ask you about that, because that's a really important, I, I love that component of it, too. And I probably read less about it because you it sounds like you haven't published as much about it. And we'll get maybe we'll get back to the meaning, because I, like, I would love to hear you say more about just the specific definition or understanding of self-transcendence, because that's so deep, goes all the way back to William James and obviously found across different cultural traditions. And more recently, I've seen... There's like a UK group, you probably know better than me, that does uh, that frames this stuff as like ontological addiction. They have this idea of like a, an addiction to self as an addictive process. And I'm just wondering how you make sense of self-transcendence. Like, what do you mean by that? I think a simple definition is, as I've offered it, is the sense of being connected to something greater than the self. And as, as that, that, that's not a binary process it's a continuum so you know it extends from the sense of, of being connected to your immediate environment and the immediate and the immediately salient parts of your life but as that as that deepens the, the sense of the self as being a distinct entity that is encapsulated by the skin as alan watts used to say that begins to fade into an experience of the self and world as being a continuum, a oneness, all the way to an experience of, of absolute unity, which is impossible to put into words, but is an experience that people have had throughout the history of humankind. And, and so this experience, I think it, it's a naturalistic experience. People, people slip into self-transcendent states for a variety of reasons, simulated by a variety of contexts. but Mindfulness meditation is one of those processes that can open the door to having these sort of self-transcendent experiences. And people often report them as, as being extremely meaningful, extremely fulfilling. Ultimate, I've described it in my, in my papers as the experience of ultimate reward, ultimate satisfaction. And, and of course, in some Indian, Tibetan, Chinese traditions, you know, this is described as bliss. So why is that relevant? You know, let's, let's ground this back into addiction because of your audience here. Why is it relevant for addiction? Because people are chasing bliss. They're chasing bliss with drugs. They're, they're scrambling to fill the hole, fill the void inside of themselves with something from the outside. They have the craving to fulfill that. And of course, that's an ever, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ever losing battle, right? Because you, know, you need more and more as the neuroadaptations in the brain occur and tolerance increases. It takes a higher and higher dose to achieve this, the desired effect. And so the hole just gets bigger. But what if there were a way to fill that hole from the inside by cultivating natural, healthy reward, by cultivating a natural, healthy sense of joy, meaning, and dare I say, bliss? And of course, there is a way, <laughs> and people, people have written and talked about it for thousands of years. What, what's, what's interesting about that with respect to more and its positionality within the larger field of mindfulness therapy and research is that that 
aspect of mindfulness has been largely ignored. It was largely ignored in the, in the first 20 years of mindfulness research. And, I, and there's a lot of historical reasons for that, about, which have to do with who, what kind of Buddhists were the first American people who brought this back to America? What kind of training did they have and what was their emphasis? Which was really just one band, in, you know, in this broad array of different spiritual practices. And some of the other traditions emphasized this element of transcendence and bliss, perhaps more than the original wave of Western teachers who brought it back to America. But yet those, that original wave of, of teachers in America, that was what really fathered the, the first wave of mindfulness-based therapies and research. And set the priorities. And set the priorities. You're, you're talking about like John Kabat-Zinn on the clinical side and then the Theravadan teachers like Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg on the more like public facing side is what I gather. Correct. Although, you know, I, I, I've spoken with John several times and, and obviously, you know, he's drawing from the deepest well imaginable. <laughs> so so what, what he shared to, what, what he decided to share with the world, I'm sure was, you know, intentional on his behalf, you know, what he thought was, was necessary for the time. But yes, yeah, certainly that Theravadan tradition, which, which is really all about non-attachment. And so I've actually heard people in the mindfulness field say that focusing on the positive is just as bad as focusing on the negative, which, and this, is, this was something that was said to me by authorities in the field, which I thought was just complete bullshit. I thought it was complete nonsense. <laughs> and from a clinical perspective, you know, totally missing the mark. And especially with regard to, to people struggling with addiction and, and people in the recovery process whose lives are full of deep suffering and who may not know how to self-generate a healthy, natural sense of pleasure, reward, joy and meaning in life. And really the neurobiology tells us that's the case, that that's one of the, one of the clear things that, that goes awry in the brain as the process of addiction deepens is, is the inability to experience natural, healthy pleasure, joy, and reward as the reward circuitry of the brain becomes more and more dysregulated. So coming full circle, and then I'll stop talking and let you ask the next question. So more really although it was, it was deeply informed by all the work that came before it, including John Kabat-Zinn's seminal work and the influence of, of a number of, of Buddhist teachers, Moore is also founded on neuroscience. And so seeing that that was the core deficit, or one of the key core deficits in addiction, was the, the blunting of the brain's reward, reward system and the, the inability to cultivate a natural, healthy sense of reward and pleasure, then it seemed obvious to me that we need an intervention that teaches people how to do that. That's the gap. That's what we need to treat. And so Moore has a heavy emphasis on that through the savoring techniques in Moore, teaching people how to, how to cultivate this natural, healthy sense of pleasure, joy, and meaning in life to fill the hole on their own. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we, we should talk about the neurobiology because I've seen in your work that you are making efforts to link the neurobiology to clinical interventions and reward seems as good a place to start as any. What does the neurocircuitry actually teach us about this sort of restructuring and reward process you're talking about? Like, how does it guide your clinical interventions? How does it tell you about like what what is necessary in working with people with addiction? Yeah. So, my, and I, you know, my disclaimer here is I'm not a neuroscientist. So take everything I say with a grain of salt. You know, but my my understanding. And this is, this is really one of the most well-plowed fields in, in addiction neuroscience is the impact of, of addiction on reward function in the brain. So we know a lot about it. We know a lot about it from preclinical studies with animals, and we know a lot about it with clinical studies with humans. And what we know is as addiction develops and the person becomes more and more deeply addicted to a, to a drug, the reward system changes in, in, in two key ways. One is that the brain becomes hypersensitive to drug-related cues and triggers. And two is that the brain becomes insensitive to natural, healthy pleasure and reward. 
as the brain essentially begins to relearn what is and what is not important in life. What stimuli are the ones that should be pursued in order to achieve the reward? And we have this primordially, we have responsiveness to natural healthy rewards and reinforcers, things that have preserved the species, sex, food, social affiliation. And I would, this is, this one isn't talked about much, but I would argue also a beautiful natural environment as well. All these things are really important for the, for the health and preservation of the species. And so our brains are just sort of wired naturally to, to respond to, to, to stimuli and cues representing sex, food, social affiliation, and natural beauty. And we get a buzz from encountering those stimuli. And that helps motivate us to continue to pursue those, those facets of life that preserve the species. But addiction actually hijacks the natural value of those non-drug reinforcers and teaches the brain, hey, those things aren't important anymore. What's important is this drug. Because when you take this drug, for example, the amount of dopamine that's released is far, far greater than the amount of dopamine that's released when you're eating an apple or when you're holding your daughter's hand. And so the brain learns, hey, these things that I used to find meaningful and pleasurable, they don't really matter that much anymore. All that matters is me getting that drug. And so when I see the cue that signals that I'm about to get that drug, that makes me want it and I experience craving. And so, of course, this creates a really a terrible trap that people fall into, which is the things in life that they used to find meaningful and pleasurable no longer give them that much pleasure and meaning. And so they feel like crap. They feel a sense of emptiness or dysphoria, and that drives them to take higher and higher doses of the drug to feel okay, which continues to dysregulate the brain's responsiveness to natural healthy rewards. And so the person gets even less pleasure and less meaning out of those experiences. And so they have to come in back for, for more drugs. And it's just this, this downward spiral that I've described in my work. So knowing that it's really important, I think, for understanding how to treat addiction. And so, a fo- and this brings us back to the beginning of the conversation of relapse prevention versus recovery. The elimination of the appetitive response to the drug the elimination of the craving, if, if we could eliminate craving, or at least preventing drug use, or eliminating triggers, that's only half of the equation. We're totally leaving the other, the other side of this untouched, which is how do you restore the healthy function of the reward system so that the brain relearns what is and what is not important in life, what is and what is not meaningful life. And I think it's our job as, as clinicians to, to help our patients through this process of restructuring the reward value of their lives. So they can, they can reclaim that sense of healthy meaning and pleasure from the parts of their lives that, that used to matter to them before they fell into the trap. That's great. I mean, I have to admit, I really dislike the hijacking metaphor. So my, my antenna always go up when people use the word hijacking, but I like the way you said it because it, to me, it sounds compatible. Not with, you know, sometimes people use the word hijacking to imply that the drug is doing all the work and the drug is like some space invader that takes over the brain. But the way you're describing, it sounds like a, a learning process where just through the natural reality of what the function is of the drug, the fact that drugs do something for people, that's why they take it, that people's reward priority shift and you're trying to induce a different kind of learning if i if i got that right and so i'm curious like how do you teach how do you teach someone that like in the framework of more or otherwise how do you how do you help people to like that natural learning of what what is more authentically healthy and flourishing so one way again is through the through the practice of savoring so we we teach this in the fourth session of more after we've done a number of sessions providing a good, strong foundation in basic mindfulness meditation. Then we, uh, we bring in a bouquet of roses and each patient gets to pick a rose and they hold the rose in front of their face and they begin to practice mindfulness with their eyes open to appreciate the pleasant colors and textures 
and scent of the flowers, as well as the touch of the petals against their skin. And then we guide people to become aware of the moment at which pleasurable sensations start arising in the body or positive emotions start to arise in the mind. And then when the, the patient becomes aware of positive emotions or pleasurable sensations, we ask them to turn their attention inward and to savor the positive inner feeling. So to really immerse themselves in, that, in, in the positive emotion, the pleasant body sensation, to take it in, take it, to take in the good and allow it to expand and then notice what kind of associations and meanings, personal meanings they may have with the experience. So for example, recognizing that a flower isn't just an object, but it's actually a living thing that has life force in it. Even if it's, it's a cut flower and the flower is a living thing that is dying. So to, to associate greater sense of, of meaning with this experience, and it's actually been quite a remarkable kind of experiences people describe in this kind of moment of intimacy and connection with the flower. And then to allow that, allow those feelings to fade and then we guide the patient to open their eyes and then to, to connect back with the flower and connect back with their senses of the flower, to touch the stem, to feel the leaves, to notice the, the tingle in their hand as they really become aware of the sense of contact with this living thing. And so there's this kind of oscillation of in, inside and outside. So focusing outside to the object that you're savoring and appreciating its pleasant sensory qualities and then turning attention inward and noticing your response to that experience, noticing the positive emotions and pleasant body sensations that arise, and then savoring the positive inner feeling. And ultimately, actually, the experience of savoring could act, can, can oftentimes lead to an experience of self-transcendence where the person feels this, this interconnectedness or this oneness with, with the object that they're savoring. And so the sense of the, the sense of the self and the world begin to merge together as the person becomes deeply absorbed into this experience. So that's, that's a description of, of, of the technique. Again, reteaching people how to find that sense of, of natural, healthy pleasure in the, in the simple, simple, pleasant experiences of everyday life. And then we ask people to go on and practice this at home with naturally occurring pleasant experiences in their, in their life, whatever comes up. You know, they're walking down the street and they hear a bird singing in the tree to stop and to actually take a moment to appreciate it and savor it. Not only the beauty of the sound of the, of the song of the bird, but also their own body, their own response to that in their body and mind. And to really learn how to access a sense of, of well-being from everyday experience all around us. So that's how we, that, that's how we one of the key ways that we restructure the reward process is by teaching people how to savor that. The other way, of course, is teaching people how to reevaluate their relationship to the drug. Yeah, I was about to ask, like you, you also use that sort of granular investigation of experience with something like pain too, right? Like I've, I've seen you've worked a lot on pain. That's right. And people, I assume, are not savoring pain, but it's, it sounds like a similar process of going very deeply into the actual moment-to-moment -moment experience of what's going on rather than trying to avoid or manipulate or otherwise escape it. That's right. And actually, although we don't, I wouldn't say we necessarily teach people to savor pain because that would sound a little uh, masochistic. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, people often, so I've done a lot of research. Most of the research, in fact, that I've done in the past 10 years has been with people with chronic pain who are also misusing opioids or have opioid use disorder. And what we've, what, we, what we've heard time and time again is that actually when we teach people to really zoom into pain, right into the heart of pain, to investigate it really, really deeply in a, in a very fine-grained fine way, oftentimes people actually discover pleasant sensations inside of the heart of the painful sensation, which sounds paradoxical, but it, I think it does connect with the, the ancient tantric notion, which is that the nature of all phenomenal experience, no matter what the phenomena is, the true nature of it is the unity of emptiness and bliss. And people actually quite often discover that when they start to mindfully introspect into the heart of their pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain 
or the pain of craving for drugs, which we teach a very similar technique to help patients to cope with craving, you know, really peering into the heart of it and deconstructing it into emptiness and bliss. Yeah, it's beautiful. To me, at least, I'm biased, but it presents a different way of relating to suffering rather than the old American dream of freedom, like freedom from any kind of discomfort at all, you know, sort of like Wally reclining on your floating couch <laughs> vision of it. Yeah. But uh, I, I can imagine it's hard to implement in practice too. And I imagine that the group part process helps a lot. I wanted to ask about the group. When you were talking about the rows, I, I thought about the group and how the group experience is supportive. And I seen that you've done some work, even in the context of COVID and video therapy, assessing the the effects of being in a group, even virtually. And it, you know, it struck it struck me that more as well as mindfulness-based stress reduction and mindfulness-based relapse prevention, these are all traditionally delivered in a group context. And unlike some of the other psychotherapies like CBT or like the third wave behavioral therapies like ACT, like those, those have like a robust kind of platform for treating people individually. And I was just wondering if you could speak to the group, like, can you do this stuff individually? Like the American and like newly technocratic obsession is with like apps and, you know, just it's not even experiencing a human experience. You just like press a button on an app and there's nothing against apps. I've seen apps help a lot of people, but like just a voice in your head tells you to do a thing and you get the brain hack and then you go on with your day, which runs so contrary to the traditional way people have learned and practiced meditation and contemplative practice. So that's a lot of dumping on the, on the notion of groups. I'm just wondering, like, how does the group work? And do you always need the group? Or how does the group and the individual work kind of intersect? The group, I think, is key. And actually, a lot of what I focus on in training clinicians in mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement is how to work with the group and how to work with the individual interfacing with the group. And we take a very, very, we have a very, I would like to say, maybe this is tooting my own horn too much, but a fairly advanced technology, I would say, of behavior change and more. You know, we're not just active listening to our patients, which really, if you look at how a lot of mindfulness-based therapies are delivered, they take this, the facilitator takes this incredibly open-ended approach. Tell me about your experience. And then the you know, the, the patient describes their experience and then they, ah, can anybody else share your experience? You know, it's very non-directive. In more, we take a highly directive approach, highly directive. And we, and we utilize the group actually as part of that process. But we, we provide a ton of positive reinforcement. We provide a ton of shaping of patients' responses. We use reframing. And the, and the core of it all is getting phenomenological helping the patient to get deeply phenomenological and describing their experience during meditation and the other related practices of reappraisal and savoring to really describe their experience in an extremely fine-grained way. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of those reasons is actually relates to the group. So, you know, if you can describe your experience in such a clear way, such that somebody else in the group could actually learn from your experience and you're actually giving your companion in this therapeutic process a roadmap of how to achieve a similar type of experience. If you can actually describe your experience in that fine-grained way, then it also gives you a roadmap to follow that same map back into that experience. And so that, that's really, that's the power of the group because you know, I could tell a patient what to do, but maybe I'm full of shit. You know, why should the patient believe me? I'm not, I don't have an opioid use disorder. How do I know what it's like? But if they hear, if they hear their peer from across the circle describing how they're using mindfulness to transform their life, and they hear from their peer that it's actually really working for them, then they start to pay attention. Then it's not just some talking head telling them that this stuff works, but it's actually somebody like them who's gone through uh, very similar life experiences. And so there's a lot of credibility to it. So I think that's one of the places where the group has a, has a, a tremendous amount of power is, is patients learning from each other, learning what works and what doesn't work in, in the application of these skills to recovering from addiction. 
and also creating this this positive climate, which I think is highly reinforcing and probably has effects on the reward system of hearing people being successful and developing this positive expectancy, therapeutic expectancy that, hey, I can get better. This, this, it is possible for this stuff to work and sharing in and celebrating each other's successes with it. So that all comes out of the group experience vis-a-vis the way that we train clinicians to, to deliver more and to process patients' experience with meditation and other techniques. It creates this sort of positive group climate, which can be infectious and in a great way. And it also helps to provide a, a map or a path for, for people to achieve these kind of experiences. Yeah, I really like that. I mean, I'm a total convert to the power of groups. So you're kind of preaching to the choir here, but I, I think it's nicely articulated those two components as you know, positive mechanisms or positive dimensions. And uh, people in recovery are smart and motivated and thoughtful and cared very, very deeply about how to get better. And they're going to learn very well about how to find relief from suffering because that's what a lot of substance use is about too, or other addictive behaviors. And I can't help but think like as you're talking about the group, because this is where me as an individual clinician, and especially as an MD who often sees people who are coming for medication treatment, they have no interest. A lot of times people come and they just want relief. And they say, I want to detox, or I just want to get stable, or, you know, I don't, I don't have the time for this, or I'm not sure that'll work for me. And so in the sort of cascade of care, there's probably going to be I'll just put it this way. It's going to be hard to get a lot of people into mindfulness-based, high-fidelity group treatment, especially in our current flawed, grossly inequitable, and explicitly racist treatment system. So <laughs> what do we do? Well <laughs> Are there like other ways, aside from your, like you have like the Cadillac of the group therapies for mindfulness, how, but how else can we get it out there? Like, what else, what else can we do? What could an individual clinician do? What, what could we scale? What could, what could go into a rehab tomorrow? What are your thoughts on that? Great questions. I mean, and I totally agree with your, your conceptualization of the problem here, which is really more about the healthcare system than, than anything else. And, and the pressure to constantly make treatment. Let's make it shorter. But can we do it without a person, a, th- a trained therapist? Let, can, let's have it done only by a peer support person. How about an app? Can a computer do it? You know, and, which is all about expediency and, and economics and possibly and probably to the detriment efficacy and actually help you know, improving people's lives. But with respect to more, first of all, we are studying it as an individual therapy fit in the, in the traditional you know, 45-minute therapy hour. So there's a couple of studies right now that are doing that. And that obviously is, is not, I don't know about obviously, but it, it could be more feasible depending on the treatment session, a setting to, to provide an individual treatment. But it is sort of a Cadillac therapy in the sense that I think more is actually really hard to do well. And you know, I put a lot of energy into training clinicians and it's a, it's a complex therapy to learn. And I think you have to be a, a pretty bright, talented therapist to, to be awesome at it. Of course, there are ways to train clinicians to make them better, but it's, it's, it's not an easy therapy to do. So how do we make it more accessible? And then that does, go, that does get down to using simple scripted interventions and whether the script is delivered by a human or whether it's delivered by an audio recording on an app. And we, we've done some research on brief mindfulness interventions, on single session scripted mindfulness interventions. And... They do seem to be efficacious for reducing physical pain, for reducing anxiety, for reducing desires for for craving, desires for taking drugs. How long do the effects last from a single scripted brief intervention? You know, we don't really know fully yet. There seems to be some evidence that, that there can be some lasting effects, but probably the extent to which the effects last will be determined by how much the patient actually practices that skill. Once, once you introduce it one time in our future studies in this area, we're going to more carefully quantify dosage. So how much practice does the patient do? And does that explain the benefit of these brief, simple scripted interventions? And I think that, that has legs in terms of a highly disseminable strategy that, that actually could be accessible 
to patients. But I'm kind of I'm kind of old school, and I really see the value in human connection and working with a clinician, a highly skilled clinician who cares about you and know and understands your problems specifically, and is really dedicated to helping you to grow. And um, you know maybe I'm a dinosaur, but that I I, I think that's where the, the strongest effect sizes are going to be seen. But on the on the other hand, you know maybe we need to take a public health approach to the treatment of addiction and you know give a little dose of something good to a lot of people and you know maybe as that sort of multiply the multiplier effect of, of across the population that'll actually translate into a into a large effect on increasing the well-being of our society yeah i think it's a both and I, it has to be a both and because i i totally agree with you that we need to fight for the protected space for humans to meet up with each other and to have that sort of direct and authentic connection that comes through something like psychotherapy. And it doesn't have to be psychotherapy for everyone. I, I think psychotherapy is fantastic, but there are other forms of like counseling and direct assistance and peer support and peer recovery. I think if it's delivered well, can be like tremendously, tremendously powerful within a sort of like recovery oriented system of care. And as long as it's an access problem, and as long as there's unjust and inequitable access to resources, we can't just have the, the Cadillac therapies going to rich whites. You know, like the, the Buddhist community writ large is uh, uh, wrestling with this issue now. You know, like there's this, this joke that the that American Buddhism, American convert Buddhism is the upper middle way. It's like the, <laughs> it's like the white upper middle class. Uh, way toward flourishing. But in that regard, you know, more has been studied in and delivered in populations of people who are underserved and from marginalized communities. And actually, we're in the middle of the study. We finished the first pilot phase of the study, and now we're in the larger trial of a study of more embedded within methadone treatment clinics in New Brunswick, New Jersey where the majority of the folks are Black or Latino and from a low socioeconomic status. And they're practicing, well, before COVID, they were practicing mindfulness in the methadone clinics. And now they're doing it online over, over Zoom platforms. But folks are really getting into it and they get a lot of benefits from it. And actually, the, the adherence to more in those communities has been better than I've seen it in any study, and so far that the outcomes show that it's highly efficacious for people in that context. So I think there are ways, I think that that's really, it's incumbent upon us as clinicians and scientists to figure out how to translate our work into the real world, and particularly to the vulnerable communities who need it the most, and make it part of standard of care in addictions treatment. I mean, think about it, in addictions treatment, you've got groups going on all the time. They might be 12-step groups, or they might be just generalized process groups. But what if that was replaced with an evidence-based therapy that's been shown to be efficacious in multiple studies, you know, in, in many studies? You know, what if we could infuse this higher quality of care into and make it the standard of care? I mean, I think that's what we really need to work towards. I, I totally agree. I think that's really important. And I love that example of a methadone clinic. I've, I've done some research into the history of methadone. And you might be familiar, but in its original conception with Nicewander and Dole, it was a fully wraparound, beautiful, rehabilitative, community-based effort. And it started out of Marie Nicewander's work in Harlem, just like really learning from and being a part of the community of people with lived experience. And then as it became institutionalized, it got pared down and they pulled out all the, the, the juicy rehabilitative stuff. And then it effectively became an instrument of control and uh, sort of like a quasi-judicial system. So I think that's a beautiful way to come full circle if you can find a way of like delivering within these like racialized and control-based quasi-criminal treatment settings, like so many that we have within the system, if there's a way of just injecting some like compassion and care. And, and a culture of mindfulness into and flourishing into that community. 
Yeah. I think mindfulness, you know, like mindfulness will, like we were talking before, mindfulness without some sort of guiding ethos will always adapt itself to the dominant culture. So if you teach a bunch of like CEOs mindfulness, they'll use the mindfulness to like double down on the profit motive. And that's fine. You know, that's not good, not bad. There are CEOs out there who are doing their job, but um, mindfulness plus meaning to me seems like it's a, it's a good platform to get people to some sort of like authentic happiness to something that's not just taking away the negative, but supportive of the, their whole life experience and what really matters in the world. So that, I love that. That's a beautiful sort of on the ground. It's a hopeful vision of the future. We're just about out of time. Is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with or any like, I don't know, advice for people who say, for example, are just sort of like sober curious or meditation curious or just like wondering, like, how do I get my start? Well, we actually somehow did this whole interview without me giving you the punchline of all this work, which is that what we found over 10 years of psychophysiological experiments is that mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement increases physiological sensitivity to natural reward and pleasure. And the more sensitive to natural healthy pleasure people become, the less they crave drugs and the less they use and misuse them. So we've shown this now in, in multiple studies. We've replicated this effect using EEG and fMRI and measuring heart rate variability and all of these hard physiological measures. And after eight weeks of practicing mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement, practicing mindfulness, reappraisal, and savoring skills, the person becomes more responsive to natural healthy pleasure. And the more responsive to natural healthy pleasure they become, the less they need the drug. So... And to me, that's, that's my greatest contribution to science, actually. And so coming full circle to the person who's curious about mindfulness or curious about recovery, I guess my recommendation would be consider that possibility that you could actually train your mind to enjoy natural, healthy pleasure again in your life, and that that could become a pathway to helping you to recover from addiction and reclaiming a greater sense of meaning in life. It's really exciting. It's really fascinating to talk about this stuff with you. Where can people go to find out more about you and your work and to, you know, maybe if they're a clinician to go deeper into learning about these types of interventions? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So I have a website, www.drericgarland.com. And uh, that's a good place to go to learn about my work. And I also list news, latest discoveries in this line of research, and also news about upcoming trainings. I have, a, I have the next mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement therapist training that's going to be held October 15th and 16th online via Zoom. So folks are, are joining from all around the country and, and around the world. So if you're interested in getting trained in this therapy, please, please reach out to me. You can find more information on my website. All right. Awesome. Dr. Eric Garland, thanks so much for joining us today. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Fisher. Nice to meet you. All right. That's my conversation with Eric Garland. Thanks so much for tuning in. This one left me with a lot to think about, especially in combination with Kevin Griffin in episode three, who talked about mindfulness and spiritually based recovery as, if not a set of supernatural beliefs, as a way of life. Here with Eric Garland, it's not quite a way of life as a clinical intervention, but there's still clearly something beyond abstinence. And I think whenever we get toward that question, what is recovery beyond abstinence, it's really instructive and deep and totally unsettled and instructive for all of human flourishing. So, if you're interested in diving deeper into any of these topics we've discussed, you can head over to my website where you can read the show notes and sign up for my newsletter. And if you like these conversations and you're finding them useful, I'd be so grateful if you'd support the show by helping me to get the word out. The best way by far is to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts, or maybe even better, you could go the old school route and just tell one other person who you think would be interested in these types of topics. I'm still just getting started and little things like that really help a lot. I started this podcast because I thought there was real value in finding depth and nuance and conversations around addiction and recovery, and especially making connections between fields and modes of understanding that often operate pretty much siloed off from one another. So if you agree, I'd be really grateful for your help. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. 
It is not medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, it's just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for its own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated.